Welcome to Reading the Bible Together. I'm your host, Angela Smith. All these different characters, the blind men in Mark 8 and Mark 10, all of these characters in some way would have been seen by their surrounding culture as maybe being uh, less than mm-hmm. in God's eyes, sinful in God's eyes. So when Jesus is saying things like, your sins are forgiven, in a Western individualistic conception, you know, we think this person is guilty before God, Jesus just forgave their sins. There's something richer to that notion of the forgiveness of sins in a first century Jewish context, where Jesus is actually saying to this person, you are now restored to God. You're, you're part of the restored people of God. We're starting a new series on the Gospel of Mark. And for the last several months, I, I kept running into the Gospel of Mark and thinking, you know, I haven't read Mark in a while, and, and I want to do that. So when we were deciding how to start the year, we knew that we wanted to start with a gospel and chose the Gospel of Mark because it quickly rose to the top. And something I discovered recently is the Story of God Bible Commentary series. I've read parts of the commentaries on Galatians and now Mark, reading or referencing commentaries. I know when I said that word, a lot of you probably felt intimidated or maybe a little overwhelmed, but that's what's great about this series. It's easy to follow, easy to understand. So for this series in Mark, I'll of course be referencing the Bible. That's A number one, but I'll also be referencing blueletterbible.org and the Story of God Bible Commentary for Mark. And in fact, I get to talk today to the author of that commentary, Dr. Timothy Gombas. Timothy Gombas teaches New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary and is the author of four books, including this commentary on Mark. He has three adult children and lives in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for taking this time. Yeah, absolutely. I was happy to be kicking around the gospel of Mark. It's just a, it's so fun to dive into and discuss and puzzle over. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to like dive right into the conversation. But before we get started, I just want people to know that, you know, like you're just a real person. I mean, you've written a commentary, but you're just a person like like all of us. So I wanted to ask a question just for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. What's your go-to movie snack or treat? Yeah, I am indeed a real person. And I actually loved uh, sort of fresh popped popcorn Mm. Uh, loaded with melted butter mm-hmm. <laughs> and none of the fake stuff. And then I also, if I'm watching a film, I will, there are these like black bean tortilla chips that Trader Joe's makes. And I pair those with uh, like this, they, they sell this corn salsa and I'm just an absolute fool for that snack. I'd load it up and uh, get under a blanket, turn on a film. It's the way to go. Nice. Nice. So uh, watching a film at home. That's right. Yeah. Are you talking about a snack in the theater? Yeah, well, if you did go to the theater, I realized when I asked the question, there could be could be both. Oh, uh, that's right. If I'm at a, a theater, I just go for the biggest container of popcorn possible. <laughs> a vat, a vat I hate of popcorn. Running out. Yes. <laughs> when you know before the end of the film. So good, so good. So before we start digging into Mark, how did you come to write this commentary? Was Mark a specialty of yours, or how were you invited into the project? Yeah, so my specialty in New Testament studies is Paul and Paul's letters and Paul's theology. And if there's one gospel that I spent the most time in, it was Mark. And um, I it was sort of my introduction to uh, narrative criticism and uh, was just fascinated by some of the things that Mark does. Sometime around 2011, I was asked to write this commentary, and I just thought, I am overwhelmed by what's in Mark, and I don't think I could do this kind of a project. But then talking to the series editor, 
Scott McKnight, he said, no, we're not looking for, you know, a deep dive into all the scholarship and all of that. We're just looking for someone to treat the text and explain it to Bible teachers and pastors. And I thought I would love to do that. I wanted to learn more about Mark for myself. I wanted to learn more about um, narrative analysis of of the Gospels, because I think there's a lot of promise in that approach. So I kind of kind of approached it as a student and just delighted in all the discovery that I got to enjoy over the next about eight or nine years that I worked on. So will you say a little bit about what narrative analysis is in case anyone listening isn't sure what that is? Yes, great question. So in the history of uh, scholarship on the Gospels, there's been a number of different approaches and methods for interpretation, and most of those have been historical. So the aim has been uh, to discern, like, what is what kind of historical situation gave rise to Matthew? What mm. kind of historical situation gave rise to Mark? And then, you know, uh, what historical incidences is Matthew's account referring to and Mark's account referring to? And that resulted in many ways in kind of breaking down the texts. And, you know, most church folks never would have really been exposed to all that kind of stuff. But in academic discussions of the Gospels, that's sort of where things were. And I have to confess, and I, I'm so glad I've heard other scholars say the very same thing. That made, to me, the Gospels intensely boring because mm. I just did not care. I did not care about, like, history or did this happen or didn't this happen? Because I approached the Gospels, like the rest of Scripture, from a posture of faith. Like, if if they are making reference to these things, then they happened. I believe that. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have to sort of like weigh that. Why, why am I interested in that? So about 40 years ago, New Testament scholars started, this is so crazy. It, it's like, it took them so, it took us so long. <laughs> we started um, grappling with the gospels as narratives. So like um, the same way that you would do like a narrative analysis of a novel, how does this gospel writer set the stage? How how does drama and conflict work in this gospel? How do the various characters do their work? How does this gospel writer construct the character of Peter or the character of Satan or the character of John the Baptist? Scholars began studying gospels as whole texts, as narratives with integrity, and began just paying very close attention to how they how they do their work narratively. When I got turned on to that, it just blew my mind, and I fell in love with Mark, I fell in love with Luke and Acts, and these are just such complex and beautiful narratives, and coming from a posture of faith and wanting to know about Jesus and the life of the kingdom of God and, and all that this has to, all that these dramas portray about who God is, the Gospels took on like a massively compelling power to me. So I think that that's... It's fun to to teach that method now to students because it's there's just there's so much that's rewarding about that approach to narratives. I mm-hmm. mean, so to approach narratives as narratives instead of as instances of history or something like that. The distinction's a fine one. Yeah, well, it but, almost uh, sounds like hit the history, uh, you know, approaching it from a historical perspective, which I love history, is almost like an apologetic kind of a defense. This actually happened where the narrative is like, I'm just going to soak in it. I'm going to soak in what God is doing here, you know, through his writing of Mark, through Mark's writing. Yeah. And I, and I was not interested in apologetics. It's like, I've, I've already, I've already stepped across the line. I'm already in, I don't need to be convinced, but now, now show me God, Mm -hmm. you know, now I want to learn more. So that, that approach to me just has so much more uh, compulsion to it. And it's been a thrill to, 
to have done this project on Mark and now looking to do some further work on Luke. And, and I can't wait to discover what I'm going to find there. Yeah, well, and what's been fun about Mark is that, I mean, it's like it, when I was thinking about all the different <clears throat> Gospels and kind of their ap- approach to what they're doing, like Luke almost feels like a documentary and Mark is it felt like a lawyer, like this is what happened. And he's like hitting the ground running and like creating his case. Mm. There's just so much action. Will you talk a yeah. little bit about like set the scene for us, you know, and it, I think it's important too when we're reading the gospels to know who they were writing to, like who is their, like their intention, their intended audience wasn't necessarily Western Christians. <laughs> so who was it that we there, they were writing to? Yeah. There's a he sense in to. which, I think one of the better insights in more recent years, maybe the last 25 years, is to note that um, the gospel writers were writing for as wide of an audience as possible. Mm. Like they just wanted to get uh, the word out and have these gospels be broadcast so that any and every audience could make use of them. But I think that there are some clues in Mark that Mark has a unique uh, intended audience or maybe like an intended kind of audience or set of audiences just like you said, Mark is the action gospel. I thought about Mark in contrast to Matthew, which is like a Rembrandt. I mean, just Matthew is incredible and complex and rich and all kinds of textures. Luke, I think you may have said this, is sort of like a Greco-Roman historian mm-hmm. and very stately and rich as well. And John is just so artistic and you know spiritual. Mark is like your seventh grader after five Red Bulls telling you <laughs> yeah. like just it, it, he's and just, then this happened. I know. And it's like and and what's crazy about Mark is exactly like a junior hire after too many energy drinks, he breaks into present tense. And some translations capture this better than others, but I think the NASB captures this well. They put asterisks on the verbs where Mark breaks into present tense. So like, you know, how like a seventh grader will come over from school and say like so-and-so did this and then they did this and then and then he says this and then he says this and she says this and they it's like past tense present tense mm-hmm. and so mark is just like uh he's switching up tenses uh the rhythm and the cadences are just uh like way too quick and in my opinion i think mark is intentionally written to to sort of keep audiences off off balance a little bit and i think it's written uh, to Christian audiences, I don't think it's. I don't think that Mark is intended for non-Christian audiences to convince them about Jesus. John is explicitly written for that purpose. Mm-hmm. I think Mark Mark contains so little of the teaching of Jesus, even though Jesus is often called teacher in Mark. There's not a lot of his teaching there. I think that Mark is actually written to Christian audiences who have heard the gospel. They're very familiar with these narratives, maybe churches that have been established and have been around for 20 years, and in some way they've grown complacent. Mm. And Mark is challenging them. He wants to shake them up and make them uncomfortable and to get them to ask themselves the question, have we grasped Jesus's message rightly? Do we really understand him like we think we do? Yes, I think that the the propulsion and the, the cadence and the pace is sort of intended for that purpose, in my opinion. Yeah, and right at the beginning, he kind of states, you know, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he makes this proclamation of who Jesus is. And then it's like mm-hmm. he's right into, when he talks about John the Baptist coming before, but it's it seemed, a lot of the accounts seem to be in these first few chapters, Jesus and the religious leaders. Like mm-hmm. So it's your point of, you know, people who have been in it for a long time and 
maybe religion is taking over instead of the relationship and the heart. Hmm. Like, so in Mark 2, 5 through 9, Jesus heals the paralyzed man who is raised or lowered through the roof by his friends. And then he says, my child, your sins are forgiven. And so some of the teachers of the law that were there took issue with him for forgiving his sins, saying that it was blasphemy. And then Jesus asked if it was, it's easier to say, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and take your mat? And I'm going to acknowledge that I might be taking something from Mark that he didn't intend, but it, it seems to speak to the correlation a little bit about sin and sickness. And in John 9, we see the conversation about the blind man and the disciples asked who sinned that he would be born blind. But Jesus replies, it's not that he's born blind. It's, and it's not because of anyone who sinned. It's that so that the power of God could be seen in him. Am I pulling something out of this Mark that, that he wasn't intending? No, I don't think you are. I think that obviously in John 9, that's stated explicitly. But I think that line behind so many of the episodes in Mark is that sort of underlying assumption on the part of the first century Jewish culture. And they have that assumption just because they're exactly like us. There's nothing uniquely bad about you know first century Jewish people. Mm-hmm. But I think they're that, just that assumption... Yeah, they're just humans. <laughs> like and, they, and, and not only that, but they've got the backdrop of all of the clean, unclean, pure, impure teachings with regard to temple practice. So they've got that in their minds as well, in their in their heritage. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's, in a sense, some kind of biblical base for them to develop the prejudice, which was inappropriate, but they have this kind of assumption that, you know, the man with the withered hand in the, uh, the synagogue in Mark 3, the woman with the issue of blood in Mark 5, the, you know, all these different characters, you know, the blind men in Mark 8 and Mark 10, all of these characters in some way would have been seen by their surrounding culture as maybe being uh, less than mm-hmm. in God's eyes, sinful in God's eyes. I mean, like I said, that prejudice is stated explicitly in John 9, but it kind of runs under the surface of all of these episodes in Mark. So when Jesus is saying things like, your sins are forgiven. In a West, in a Western individualistic conception, you know, we think this person is guilty before God. Jesus just forgave their sins. There's something richer to that notion of the forgiveness of sins in a first century Jewish context, where where Jesus is actually saying to this person, you are now restored to God. You're you're part of the restored people of God. Because that is what Jesus is going around doing in his ministry. He's building back, he, he's restoring to God a people, is that, what he's doing. It's kind of like rebuilding Israel in a sense. And he's telling this, he's telling this man, you're part of that movement. That is so interesting. Because, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that when Jesus heals physically, that there's also some kind of redemption. There's some kind of renewed, like when he heals the woman with the issue of blood, he calls her daughter and he, you know, reestablishes her position in the community. And so he's not Mm -hmm. only healing her body, he's bringing healing. So more communal. So what I'm hearing is that it's, there's a, there's a community piece of it that we, I may not get when we read it. That's right. We just don't have the framework uh, to see what is up and running. Um, but for, in that context, salvation, restoration, redemption, it's holistic. It has to do with you know, body, spirit, relationship to God, relationship to community. It's holistic. 
Um, I, I'll tell you one one way that this makes good sense is at the beginning of Mark, John is out in the desert calling people away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus goes out to be baptized. Now, on our conception, where like you get baptized when you get saved, it's like, why is Jesus getting baptized? Did he just, you know, did he just get saved? It's like, no, no, not at all. There's a sense in which John's movement begins before Jesus's ministry actually starts. And when Jesus hears, because he has a heart attuned to God, he hears about his cousin, this wild, wild man, Mm -hmm. (laughs) out in the desert, baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins. That is to say, he is building a movement of people who are preparing themselves for God's next move in his redemptive plan. These are not super guilty people. These are people that want to join God's renewal movement. And Jesus is one of those people. So the baptism of John was a baptism of preparation. It wasn't really a baptism of quote-unquote salvation as we understand it. Because wasn't baptizing that that cleanse—wasn't it part of a regular cleansing process that they would have done? Well, baptism really was— in general, it was a transition act. It was some kind of um, initiation act. Okay. So it was like the passing over from one stage to another. So it could be put to use in, in a variety of different ways, like the Qumran community out in the desert near John in the first century and just before. They were doing washings for purification. John was doing a baptism to pass over from like just participating in the general population of Israel to become part of this new movement of preparing for God's next move of redemption. And then Christian baptism becomes this thing where people pass out of whatever their former life was to now become followers of Jesus. So baptism in general is just some initiation rite or some um, act of passage from one mode of existence to another. And it, it gets put to use in different ways. That's helpful. I think that's helpful to understand, you know, that, that it's been used in different ways to have a better understanding of it. Thank you. That was really helpful. That was very that was very interesting. Um, at the end of chapter two, when Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields and it's the Sabbath and his disciples are breaking the heads off the grain and eating it, the Pharisees accuse them of breaking the law of the Sabbath. And then Jesus tells an account of David um, saying that the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the son of the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. And in your commentary, you talk about the Pharisees effort to move God to initiate the kingdom. Would you talk about this, um, you know, the Sabbath meeting our needs and then what it means for the Pharisees to move God to initiate the kingdom? Yeah, that's a really, um, that's really critical to grasp that I think. Um, it's, it's also kind of complicated. So many Christian people have a really awful view of the Pharisees, or I should just say a simplistic view of the Pharisees and what their aims were. Um, the Pharisees are a group of people on the pages of the New Testament and, and in history um, who were specially devoted to the God of Israel and committed to God's glory and committed to Scripture and they were longing for God to come and save Israel. They were long and and salvation looked like getting the oppressive Romans off of God's land. I mean, mm-hmm. the Romans were unclean in God's pure land. I mean, they were just a blight 
on God's uh, on God's pure land. Also, they were a, re- a reminder um, that God's salvation had not come yet, because salvation looked like liberation from oppression, um, enjoying uh, fruitful uh, harvest seasons, um, independence, no poverty, uh, the God of Israel reigning from Jerusalem, and um, yeah, basically just freedom from oppression and and having communal joy and delight. And that is what the Pharisees were longing for. That's what all of Israel was longing for. But the Pharisees believed that they could sort of get God to act to bring about salvation if they could produce for God a nation that was obedient to Torah the way that they were. Mm. Because they imagined uh, they imagined that they were rendering to God the kind of obedience to the law, to Torah, to Scripture that God wanted. And so they saw it as their mission to get just everyday Jews and just the rest of the the Jewish population to become obedient to Torah the way that they were. And as part of that was Sabbath observance. So when Jesus and his disciples are, you know, observing or are behaving differently on, on the Sabbath than the way that they were, they don't think, hey, you're breaking our rules. They think, hey, you guys are standing in the way of God saving Israel. So, I mean, it's like, it, it's a, it's serious. And basically what they were so well motivated, but what they ended up doing, and Jesus is exactly right about this, of course he is, is that they ended up making Torah, not this wonderful gift of God to Israel to show Israel how they could enjoy God's love, but they made it this thing that became an oppressive reality for Israel. And Sabbath changed from becoming this amazing gift of the God of Israel to Israel of having just one day off where they could not work, but they were, they were to engage in any and every activity that wasn't productive. Like take a walk, take a nap, play a game, kick a ball. I mean, do anything except work to eat. Um, so it was like a mandate to enjoy it. You know, like, like I want you to have frolicking. I want you to explore. I want you to go on a hike. That mm-hmm. that was the mandate. Instead of like working seven days, it was like work six and then one day just enjoy. And instead of becoming, instead of being that good gift, uh, the Pharisees inadvertently turned it into something that um, became oppressive. And Jesus living along with his disciples into the fullness of God's good gift became an offense uh, to the Pharisees. So that was the source of that conflict. And as you pointed out in Mark 2, 1 to 3, 6, there's an, there's an escalating series of accounts, conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees over just that issue, over Sabbath. Well, and it's, What's appropriate to do on the Sabbath? What's not appropriate to do? Yeah, and it sounds like what you were saying at the very beginning, just Jesus kind of turning, or Mark, Mark's intention was to kind of keep you off balance. My youngest son is a wrestler. And what we, I've learned is that all oh, the, the wrestlers are trying to keep each other off balance to like, you mm-hmm. have to stay alert because you're mm-hmm. going to, you don't want to get knocked off balance and that, that he's turning all these things on their head. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm so glad that you talked about the Pharisees and, and their intention, because if you, if it, if it was your responsibility to make sure our nation was pure, you that, like you would do the best thing that, you know, the do it the best way that you knew how and totally. even when we're doing the best that we can, sometimes it's not really what God intentioned. And yes, things might have to be righted. 
That's right. Things are always uh, the 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 subtle ways that we get off track um, are just we we're always missing them. We're always missing them. So it's mm-hmm. it's so critical to have that always cultivated nimbleness and readiness to be wrong and to listen to what God has to say and what scripture has to say. Cause it's like when we think that we're sort of most sure and certain about something is usually when we're a bit off track. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. Well, this went by really, really fast. Thank you, Dr. Timothy Gambas for joining me for this conversation today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this conversation about the Gospel of Mark. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue the conversation on reading the Bible together.